Welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast in which we explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. In this, our fourth season, we're looking at Kenneth Branagh's 2011 film, Thor. I'm Matthew Fox from TheEthicalPanda.com. And I'm Andy Nelson from The Next Real Film Podcast. And today we're talking about the minute that is the answer to life, the universe, and everything, Minute 42, which begins with Odin explaining himself and ends with Loki discovering just how hurtful words can be. Joining us on the show today again is Austin Titchener, creator of The Shakespeareans, co-artistic director of The Reduced Shakespeare Company, and producer and host of The Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast. Austin, great to have you with us again. Hi, gents. Great to be back with you. So I want to ask, we got to hear a lot about kind of the Shakespeare background. What's your background on Marvel? Were you a comic book guy? Were you someone who just kind of got into the movies? What, where does that sort of the connection for you come? That is really interesting because I was a, I was a comic book guy as a kid, but I was a DC guy. Ooh. Um, and I don't, I, <laughs> so I, I, I can't, okay, shh, shh. I, I'm not even sure I can articulate why, except I think and I'm only thinking, I'm only expressing this now for the first time, so I may, be, I may bumble this, but um, I think there was something about the, the DC comics, particularly the ones in the early 70s, the Green Lantern, the Green Arrow, um, uh, a Swamp Thing. Uh, uh, there, was, there, was, there was the crisis on Infinite Earth. There was an earnestness and a, and a sense of melodrama that felt that, that now, as I think about it, feels Shakespearean in a way. It feels theatrical in a way that the marvel comics i think of the time felt more uh sitcom-y or tv ish i've read a lot of histories of dc and marvel and the language used is pretty much exactly the way it's described you know uh was Zack snyder's most recent justice league movie that people have very mixed feelings about um but one of the things that Zack snyder himself has said is that he didn't want to tell a story about people he wanted to tell a story about these larger than life demigods almost and uh Again, we can debate if he succeeded or not, but I think that I think you, it's a great analysis. And the, in some ways, Thor is kind. He feels more like a DC character in some ways, uh, and so it's great to kind of have him bridge that gap. Certainly, certainly in these films, he 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 does. Um, I mean, I think it's interesting. I was drawn more to the to the Green Arrow of it, uh, uh, the the human heroes, um, uh, or, or, or again, I, I keep coming back to Swamp Thing. You know, um, uh, <laughs> nice. uh, people who have been, people who have been transformed, um, which is actually now that I think about it, a real Marvel thing. Now that <laughs> now that I think about it, um, but I came to the movies like everybody did, as as the, the as um, uh, you know, as just summer blockbusters, popcorn entertainment. And, and as they have gone on and as they have developed and as the storytelling has gotten more complex, uh, and nuanced, um, I've come to enjoy the serial storytelling of it. Um, and, and, but it wasn't honestly until the, the new TV shows started, WandaVision and then, um, Falcon and Winter, Sno- Winter, Winter Snowman. What? Winter Soldier. So, thank you. <laughs> Falcon. That can't be right. Uh, Falcon and Winter Soldier. Is that a Timothy Hutton one. Right? Yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and Loki. Then I suddenly be, I, then I, I have really become impressed with the, the, with the corporate storytelling of it uh, and how Feige has steered all of this. I wrote a piece about how Wanda, I, I, I contribute monthly articles to the Folger Shakespeare Library's Shakespeare and Beyond blog. And they're, they're always about the intersection of Shakespeare and popular culture. And I wrote a piece about how WandaVision, I was obsessed with it when it first came out because WandaVision was playing with characters and genre and, and tone and how the genre itself 
was telling the story, was giving the audience information um, that contrasted with some of what the characters knew or didn't know. Um, and it st- WandaVision started making, think- make- making me think about Shakespeare in new ways because Shakespeare played with genre. Shakespeare placed characters who don't know the co- what kind of play they're in. Romeo and Juliet don't know that they're in a tragedy. And, and in fact, for much of the play, they think that they are legitimately in a romantic comedy. Shakespeare took um, Falstaff, the character of Falstaff, who Thor rep- resembles in many, many ways, uh, out of a couple of history plays and plunked them down into a domestic sitcom, almost, The Merry Wives of Windsor. And the other thing that that I love about this is that Shakespeare, Shakespeare was a populist storytelling. He helped invent the industry of the theater, of how people get paid to do what they do, particularly writers. And as a playwright myself, I'm fascinated by this. Um, He only really made money when he kept creating content that put butts in seats. Um, He was the closest the Elizabethan age and Jacobean age have to a corporate entity. Um, He was the marvel of his day, Shakespeare. Um, he and he created this expend, extended universe of sequels and prequels and and um, and recurring characters, Crossovers. recurring characters. Yeah. And um, um, when we wrote our play, uh, our produced Shakespeare Company play, William Shakespeare's long lost first play, Abridged, we had the idea for it in 2010, but we got down to serious writing it in 2015. We were very much playing with the idea that all of Shakespeare's characters and all of his plot lines are part of an extended um, SCU, a Shakespeare cinematic universe where all the characters actually were living in the same world. And that was an incredibly fun playground and sort of came full circle for me from comics to Shakespeare and back to comics and back to Shakespeare. It's such a great, such a great observation. We're going to get into all of that after we put some butts in the seats and with this quick promo. There's a lot of juicy stuff happening in the movie this week, and we would love to have you get in on the conversation with us. We have a growing group of Marvel fans just waiting to chat with you over in our Discord server. Head to truestory.fm slash Marvel Movie Minute and click on the Discord link. So let's talk about where this minute starts, because, again, we just have Shakespeare all over this minute, you know. Odin is telling the story and he, he's finally kind of admitting the the thing he didn't want to say because he thinks Loki's going to misunderstand it, that he, he saw this baby as a way to bring peace. And you can just see from Loki's face that this is not how this he is so stricken. He just he's at a loss for words, which is really saying something for this character. What what's happening in each of their in their, each of their minds in this moment, do you think? Well, we we, we talked a little bit uh, last time about uh, Loki rediscovering his or discovering the truth of his own identity. And uh, and I think that's horrible for him. The fact that he is, you know, he sees himself as the hero because of course who doesn't see themselves as the hero of their own. But now literally in this minute he goes, "Wait a second, I'm just another trophy." for you. I'm just another thing to be kept in this room as an artifact and I'm a monster. And I'm the I'm I'm literally belong to the tribe of people that that we tell our children to be afraid of. Um and and it turns out I'm a prince of that realm. <laughs> I'm an actual prince rather than just an adopted prince here. So there's a lot of conflicted things going on for Loki 
And we talked a little bit about this, about uh, about Odin's motivations here. I think you're right, Matthew. I think he is trying to comfort his son, and he believes what he's saying, that he found Loki, uh, Loki was abandoned, and he was taking him up to take care of him, and he calls him my son. He, you know, he, I think he's genuine about that. What's what's so wonderful about that is Anthony Hopkins, the the his performance and 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 Branagh's direction and Branagh's casting of Hopkins. He could have played it any number of ways. He could have played it harshly. He could have played it angrily. He could have played it as the warrior he's supposed to be. But no, he plays it kind of softly, you know, genuinely, sincerely. He's trying to let Loki down as gently as he possibly can. And some of that's just Hopkins instinct. Some of that is in surely Branna's direction. But whatever it is, it's it's absolutely wonderful because you you're 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 heartbroken because I think they both want good things for the other nobody's really being a bastard here either way no no pun intended i guess loki is legitimately but you know what i mean i mean they're both neither one of them are being evil in this particular moment it's funny though because like you you hear what odin says about you know i wanted to unite the kingdoms to bring around a permanent peace but you know my head is like well how does kidnapping your enemy's child and then say okay well now let's be friends like how how does that work to kind of create peace like it's i i don't really understand it and so part of me thinks that like he hadn't ever really thought about it it was almost like just an intuitive thing that he's just like i should just take this baby and not kill it and he hasn't really had a lot of thought about it until he's being pressed right now by loki and it makes me feel like he's just kind of coming up with this in the spur of the moment. And like, that's kind of what I was thinking. I, I think I was thinking about this, but it really doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I, I, I think I, I, I'm with you there. I, I do think you could make a kind of sense of the like being able to tell the Asgardian people at some point, like, look, someone who is just as beloved to you as my other son actually is, you know, from this world. And, and, and I, I think that maybe he's thinking in the terms of like, I want some point to make sure Asgardians don't think of Jodens this way. Um, that may be totally wrong, but I certainly think you're right. <laughs> but in meanwhile, that. let's let's make him look like one of us. <laughs> well, right, but but I certainly think you're very correct in the where Odin's coming from because uh, you know, one thing in relationship counseling that I always saw was that when people are having a fight, there's often three things happening. There's the event that happens. There's the emotional context one person puts on it, and the emotional context someone else puts on it. And you know, so Odin did this thing that he sees because he thinks it was as a loving act. Loki is saying, no, no, that is not an act of love. That's an act of something very different. And I think Odin is having this moment where he's realizing, oh, maybe it was like, it's that kind of moment where you realize you screwed up. You realize you did something that goes against the emotional content that you wanted this person to feel. But you're trying to sort of deal with that while also still understanding, like, no, this doesn't mean I didn't love you. I did love you, you know, and as well as the idea that what can sometimes happen is, you know, someone tells you this very complex moment and they hyper focus on one part of it. Like, I, I, I think Odin is being, you know, he's not speaking in words that Loki can hear. But when he then says, why do you twist my words? I also have so much sympathy for him because I I hear that happening. You know, he's he's trying to convey so much. And Loki is just hyper focusing on the one thing that feeds into his insecurities, you know. And so it's just uh, these people need a therapist. Asgard needs therapy. (laughs) Well, well, I think uh, um, I mean, I think Odin is twisting his own words. I mean, it's 
to get to to your point, Andy, I mean, this this I'm trying to unite our kingdoms again. That's a very Shakespearean motivation. Sure. Right. It, it, it appears in so many of his plays and it's always got a some sort of positive spin. I want to go capture France to unite the kingdoms or sure you do, <laughs> you know, and uh, um, um, but 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 it's an absolutely true thing. At the end of Henry V, he marries. He's trying to marry uh, Princess Catherine to unite the kingdoms. To unite the kingdoms, and uh, you, you know, supposedly their children will be both. They'll be Franco, Anglo Franco, Franco American. No, that's spaghetti. Hang on. No, they'll be <laughs> they'll be born of two worlds, and that will that will supposedly keep peace amongst the kingdoms. That was always the belief, and yet it rarely seemed to be true. Yeah, I seem to well, remember and, a Napoleon guy. France and England peace didn't actually come true. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, no. And boy, does Shakespeare love anti-France humor. I mean, it's 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 four hundred years old and it's cracks every time. Still works. Still works. Still those works. Jokes. I, I end up starting to think about the logistics of all this too. So, like, if he you know disguises Loki immediately as an Asgardian, brings him home, then does he have to like send Frigga off off Asgard for? I don't know, nine months, however long Asgardian pregnancies are until so she can come home and like pretend that she went away to have a baby. Like, how does all that work? And and like Heimdall, like, can he actually see past this spell to actually see the real Loki? Like, does he always know or is he, he is he also blocked from that? Like, I, and then this height thing, I'm still bugged. The fact that Loki like this spell just makes him look like he's Asgardian height as opposed to much taller. I agree with 90% of that, but they do say <laughs> that you were abandoned. You were like, the, I forget the exact words. There's say, something yeah. like that you were the runt, you know? Um, you were smaller, small for a frost giant. Yeah, but still small for a frost giant. Uh, you know, I'd still like, I mean, I don't dwarfism know. happens in all races, maybe like. Sure. <laughs> Tom Hiddleston is a tall drink of water. I don't know. Yeah. And he lost a lot of weight for this movie. It's what part of why he looks so different than what he normally does. <laughs> oh, yeah. He's a he's such a big tub of goo, that Tom Hiddleston. <laughs> And then, then Loki has this wonderful moment where he describes himself as like, I'm just one more stolen relic. And again, this is Hiddleston's incredible acting, the wonderful dialogue and direction. For me, this is, this is such a pivotal moment for Loki because I feel like this is the moment where I see just how insecure and scared he is. You know, that so much of the confidence he has is the projection because, you know, I, I say this as someone who's wrestled a lot with insecurity and, and lack of confidence in my own life at different points. You know, if there's something you're afraid of, you know, if, you know, if, if there's something that you worry about all the time and your anxiety is always telling you, here's what people really think of you, they can say nine things that contradict that. And one thing that could sort of maybe be heard as reinforcing what your anxiety is telling you. And all you'll hear is that thing your anxiety is telling you. Right. Especially if they're not being direct with you. And I think that's, you know, as you said, Odin is kind of gaslighting him a little bit. He's not being direct. And that means that all Loki can hear. I just this moment is just so incredibly relatable, you know, and I feel like I can exactly understand emotionally, psychologically what's happening with both of these characters and that neither one of them is evil or wrong. They're just people having these feelings. I read an article that was really interesting about um, adopted children who didn't find out that they were adopted until they were long into their adulthood. And it was just kind of exploring how it made them feel. And I mean, it's it's amazing that you don't really think about so many life choices that you end up making as you grow up based on kind of your family and the history and and the things that they did like based on you know family health histories and things like that or 
or just uh, kind of the different um, uh, mentalities that they that they kind of the the, the family culture had, uh, they they never thought outside of that and ended up feeling like I should have like been paying attention to all these other things, but I never knew because you never told me. I mean, it's it's a powerful thing to come to a place so late in life. And I know Loki's not like in his, uh, you know, you know, 60s or anything, you know, in Midgardian years. But uh, it's still, I mean, it's it's a difficult thing to kind of hit this point and all of a sudden have everything. I mean, all the tables are are turned at this particular point. It's a hugely transformative moment in many ways. I mean, literally in that image of the baby going from blue to yellow. Right. (laughs) Um, Or amber. um, (laughs) Beige. But he is... um, I don't know whether this is ever explicitly stated, but there, it's clear that Loki has an inferiority complex compared to Thor. I mean, their 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 sibling rivalry is strong, and I you know it seems like uh, uh, Thor has the good look, good looks and the brawn, and and Loki has the quick wit and um, uh, the um, the ability the the lithe quickness, I suppose. Yeah. Um, but but what Odin now says confirms literally i mean just confirms loki's deepest fear that he is less than mm-hmm. um so i i, I it, it 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 really does feel like the moment that loki goes off in this direction this vil- explicitly villainous direction because of this minute right here yeah i i commented last week that in some ways this movie is not just Thor's origin story, it's Loki's origin story. And I love that you keep bringing up the TV show because I feel like my view of this is so totally changed by knowing where Loki is going to go in in all the rest of the properties he's in. Again, I wanted to point out the the technical side of of how this is shot. Now, both of them, the lighting is being so well done by the fire and each of their faces are kind of half lit, half in darkness. And it just, it, it for me is so evocative of the tone of this whole minute, this whole scene. Yeah, I mean, it really highlights that idea of like the half truths that are going on and and the lies that have you know ex- extended this far throughout uh, their lives and and brought them to this point. So it's, I mean, it is a beautiful look for the uh, for capturing this particular scene. And returning to the point of of, of um, uh, uh, Loki's transformation into kind of a true villain uh, path timeline here, um, that too seems very reminiscent of Shakespeare's great charming villains, like uh, uh, like Richard the Third specifically, but also Don John. I mean, people who from Much Ado About Nothing, you know, characters who embrace their villainy and are not afraid to show it. I mean, as as we're as as Loki continues to be. Of you know a, a feature in our culture now with the TV series, and we're as we record, it's the 20th anniversary of uh, is, I think it's the 20th anniversary of The Sopranos and the mm-hmm. release of the new movie, the prequel movie. Um, you know, everybody's talking about how Tony Soprano invented the uh, the charming antihero, but I think we have to go <laughs> back at least to um, to Shakespeare uh, and Richard the Third for that that charming antihero, which a, a, a lineage that includes Loki. Yeah, certainly. And I, I do kind of love that you brought up Don, John John there because I remember at the time everyone saying, oh, this is the ultimate proof we ever needed that Keanu Reeves can't act. Uh, and now so many people <laughs> re- reevaluating his career and that performance uh, and so many great things. I'm going to I'm going to take the other um, the alternate approach and say that Michael Keaton is the one that brings that movie down. But 
send your cards and letters to my Twitter feed. <laughs> you, mean, you mean Beetlejuice? <laughs> yeah. Fair. Yeah. Uh, it's amazing there's any scenery left after you chew through all of it. <laughs> That's a topic I definitely want us to get into. Um, can we do the Kenneth Branagh minute by minute podcast? Can, can, and anyway, yeah, right. uh, <laughs> too many ideas, too many ideas. Andy, you wanted to get to get into the Odin sleep moment. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, well, again, I was just talking about the, the, the fact that the lighting here is, is so evocative. And also it just it works so well for this this moment that feels kind of like we're we're suddenly at this end of odin's life or you know at, at this, as we learn it's not really he's dying he's just falling into the odin sleep which is a very particular uh marvel comics thing that they uh created for him but really the way that i i love this moment is it feels like this is this very very heavy emotional moment between father and son or adopted son as we learn and it's it's so heavy and so emotional that it really pushes this parent to essentially suffer a heart attack is kind of the way that it plays here as as odin kind of falls back on the steps and kind of and just kind of his eyes close and he essentially seems like he's dying and that's what i find so powerful about the way that they crafted this moment to hit so hard that it pushes him into this place yeah this the the all-powerful odin can be struck down or sent into a coma because of emotional stress yeah family stress uh, that's that's amazingly he can whatever he can get over to jotunheim on his own there are other ways than just the bridge but somehow this is what brings him down the odin sleep um you know uh, just to kind of clarify what this is it's basically a very deep sleep that odin apparently needs to go into periodically to recharge his odin force which is his magical magical energy giving him all of his power while he's there he's vulnerable he but he sees everything that's happening around him and the whole universe and he's been putting it off uh, for a very long time because he knew the nine realms would be unguarded without him even though i, I don't really understand why because they've been in this time of peace but uh, perhaps Laufey's been waiting in the wings for him to do this just so he could finally attack. Um, but that's why at the start of the film, he was getting ready to kind of uh, uh, coronate Thor so that then he could go into the Odin sleep while uh, Thor was ruling in his stead until he woke up again. There's a bunch of things I want to get into. One of them is I want to get back to the emotional character, but let's, let's talk about the Odin sleep itself first, because I think you're exactly right. It kind of when we talked about those minutes, we were sort of wondering why, why is now the time of the coronation? And I think this really answers that. And that, Austin, you're saying it's kind of interesting that this is the moment that does it to him. I think in some ways it's, it's the confluence of it. It's the, I mean, you could sort of call this movie, Odin has a very bad day. Because um, for him, this is all, it's all the same day it, it, it is what we see, sort of see him. It's all, and he has just, he's lost one son. And, and we talked before about how there's a lot of self-doubt there. You know, a moment of, what did I do wrong? You know, to then have your other son in this exact same day come to you with all of this, you know, you see just why it hits him so hard. And this, and the sequel to Odin's very bad day is Ragnarok, which is Thor's incredibly bad. <laughs> yes, day. the no good, awful, very bad. I, I also just want to say quickly about the Odin sleep thing. It, it is all interesting, and um, a lot of the people who I know who are experts on Norse mythology, uh, particularly those who continue to practice the religion of of the Norse gods, uh, Asatru, or versions of that. Um, really hate this moment because this is very much not something at all in mythology. In the mythology, he would attend, uh, occasionally go intentionally into a trance state. And the most famous of these is when he, for nine days, hangs on the world tree in order to gain knowledge. 
but it's a very intentional thing that he does as a way to kind of like a shaman going into a trance moment or a meditative thing. It's not a, I have to do this, you know, kind of like Odo in his bucket, you know, uh, for Star Wars fans, Star Trek fans will get that reference. Well, it does seem like he he is supposed to intentionally do it. It's just, right. you know, he's been putting it off and and it's pushed him as we saw from that deleted scene or not from the deleted scene, but from a scripted scene where he was talking to Frigga before the uh, the coronation about how he's feeling very weary and and he really needs to get this done because he's kind of waited far too long. No, you're right. I just mean it's the difference between I'm going to do this in order to seek new knowledge versus oh, sure, I have yeah. to do this to recharge kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, right, right. Well, and that, that it's a choice rather than something that happens to him. Yeah, right. yeah. And that right. he can control or it can be kind of brought about. Uh, I want to talk about the other side of this because of Loki, because I think his reaction is, again, one that makes so much sense to me. Um, I, I, when I was doing counseling work, I had a, uh, a client a long time ago who would talk— who was, we were kind of helping them work through this very abusive relationship they'd had with their parent and how they kind of move things to a different place. And they said that for them, the, the single moment that they could never forget was the first time that they saw their parent cry. And it was because of like things they had said about, you know, like, dad, you're doing all these things that are so hurtful. And that th- they had this reaction that was both like it hurt them so much, but they were also so angry because it was like, wait, no. I'm talking about the terrible things you did to me. I'm not supposed to have to care about your emotions in this moment. You're supposed to be thinking about mine. And I feel like that's, it's, you kind of talked about the moment you first realized your parents are fallible. I think this is a similar moment where you realize like your parent, you can hurt your parents just as much as they can hurt you. And I feel like that's part of what, like Loki has this very tender moment at the end, but at first he sees his father fading and it makes him even angrier. Sure. And I think that's exactly why. Sure. And that seems exactly right, too, because, I mean, your 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 parents weakness as as you begin to challenge them and push back at them is their their weakness is also kind of a form of abuse. Yeah. Oh, now you're just using this new tactic to get at me by showing how weak you are instead of just taking it and acknowledging it. You're collapsing and leaving the conversation. Mm. Yeah, I think it's a really good way to put it. And, 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 and you can and one can feel both angry about that and, and horrified and, and scared for the, your parent. Well, and I think that's likely why Loki stands over Odin for such a long period of time right at the end of this minute. Like he's like he he has to like almost shift gears mentally to like, you know, kind of pull himself out of this fight state and and kind of take in what's actually happening and that moment where he does reach down and touch uh touches odin uh to odin's hand i mean it's it's a beautiful moment but i think it's also like that moment where it's like are, is this really happening it's almost like that dream moment like is this is is this where we are what just happened like i i think that's a really interesting moment that we have here before he kind of snaps out of it in the next minute yeah i think that's so well done and especially that You'd written in our notes when we talked about this, that that tender hand moment. I don't think I'd even noticed it for the first time, but the way he just reaches out. And of course, we can see in the next moment how upset he is about it. It's just, you know, it's funny. I Obviously, as the host of this show, I want to always tell people why the minute by minute format is so interesting. This minute really is where I really, I mean, I think I've always loved the minute by minute format, but where it most hit me because I'm willing to say at this point, like, I've I've pretty fundamentally changed my view of Loki in this movie. Like, I've already been talking about that somewhat, but Andy, you and I have been talking in previous minutes about how often I felt Loki wasn't quite as conflicted as you did, and I thought he was being much more manipulative. I had always seen the scene in the past as Loki is intentionally pushing his father into the Odin sleep so that he can become king. Mm. And I think it's finally now that we're going this this deep of analysis that I realize, no, that's that's 
that's not the case. Like yeah. Hiddleston's a good enough actor that you can see that maybe some subconscious thing is happening there. But really, I think it's also kind of what you said. It's this is the moment where he really realizes what he is and what he could be. And he does that villain turn, you know, because it just this is where it's no longer mischief. It's just broken for him. That's interesting because I I I I never saw it the way you you saw it, that he's doing this intentionally. I in fact it 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 hum, humanizes if that's the right word, yeah. <laughs> uh, Loki for me in that he does seem scared for his father and concerned, and that hand touches is, is really lovely. In the context of where we are now, after seeing um, the Loki series and preparing for the various multiverse movies that are coming out, this feels like one of those pivotal moments, and there's probably a technical term for it, but where the timeline could have gone in several directions right in this minute, depending on his reaction to Odin, whether Odin goes into the, sl- the sleep or not. There's so many ways this 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 could have gone. This story could have gone uh, just because of how powerful this moment is. You know, we often talk. We were just talking about how both the MCU and Shakespeare cover so many different genres. Uh, one of my guilty pleasures is I love a good high school, you know, melodrama. I love Gossip Girl and stuff like that. And as we're talking, I really want our next Disney Plus show to be Loki, Sif, the Warriors Three, Thor in Asgardian High School. You know, just like get to see how those dynamics were playing out when they were teenagers and all this stuff about because clearly Loki, Thor and Odin all have fundamentally different perspectives on what the childhood of those two kids was like. And I just now I want to see it. Well, and and it's funny you say that because it, um, I've often, but I I do I have directed twice a production of Much Ado About Nothing set in a 1950s high school. Oh boy, oh, okay. nice. Wow. And I have t- and I have talked to several people uh, who agree that um, that most of Shakespeare's plays could be set in a high school because the emotions are so powerful and so on edge, like a bunch of hormonal teens. You know, you've got to feel everything in a Shakespeare play as strongly as hormonal teenagers feel everything. (laughs) You know, so I don't think that I don't think that's wrong at all. And in talking about the multiple genres, I mean, this is. Another similarity between Shakespeare and, and and the Marvel, the MCU, is is its blending of genres and its blending of tones. And the, you know, Shakespeare's official genres are histories, comedies, tragedies. Unofficially, there are romances and very little science fiction. Unfortunately, unless you count magic as science fiction. Um, <laughs> But all of his plays, all of his plays contain all of that. And I think the best Marvel movies have all of that as well, that the the comedies are grounded by really serious pain. And the more serious movies, the more epic ones are grounded, are also lightened by comedy moments. Sure. Yeah, very true. I I love that you said that. I just need to, as a quick, two quick asides, first of all, mention that Minneapolis, where I live, has a great theater scene. So if you ever want to bring that 1950s high school version of Much Ado About Nothing, I'll start making calls to theaters because, God, I want to see that. <laughs> I'm ready. But but also, I love that you, you brought it up because it's not a word-for-word uh, version. It's more of an adaptation, but the same storyline. One of my favorite Shakespearean movies, uh, or two of them, really, are Ten Things I Hate About You and Oh. Uh, Ten Things I Hate About You, everyone knows Taming of the Shrew, but Oh is, is not as well-known, but it's Othello as the the black kid who's brought into this elite private school as the basketball captain. And it's just, I think it's my favorite version of Othello I've ever seen. Like, it's so perfect. 
for that high school setting. It is perfect. The other one I like in, in that vein is She's All That, which is Amanda Bynes, uh, that, which is Twelfth Night, but Amanda Bynes um, disguising herself as a boy to play on the soccer team. Oh, nice. <laughs> it's really good. It's it's really good. And the, and the first appearance that I know of, of Channing Tatum, where as the dumb jock, where I went, who is this guy? I mean, they're, he's really talented. I mean, it's funny. Going back to the, going back to about how this minute is a pivotal minute, minute in terms of how the, how the storylines could have gone, you know, again, with the the what if uh, uh, series right now one of the things that we did um in our play William Shakespeare's long lost first play abridged which is basically first draft Shakespeare where he's writing things that he ultimately fixed later on <laughs> um, was this investigation of writing the pairings and some narrative lines that Shakespeare didn't choose so it's it's a little bit fan fictional but for instance Hamlet in his long lost first play meets up with Lady Macbeth, who who is able to convince him to kill the king much much quicker. <laughs> Indecisive, you know? Lady Macbeth is not. <laughs> yeah, and and uh, and and for instance, that the the three witches uh, in Macbeth also happen to be the daughters of a king named Lear. I mean, there's just oh, all these overlaps, and in exploring these kind of what ifs um, in Shakespeare, you're also kind of investigating the choices that they did make um, the stories that they did choose to tell. And I think that's, that's what's fun for me about the new emphasis on the multiverse in the MCU. Yeah. It's, it's very interesting. And and as far as our conversations too, I think it's interesting when we look at the film as it is, but then we also discuss like the script and the deleted scenes. Cause sometimes it's like, wow, that's an interesting element that they actually were thinking about and including they didn't end up putting it in the final film, but you can start seeing like these traces of these things like the Odin sleep. Like there was a lot more stuff about the Odin sleep and, and things like that, that were in here that aren't now, but just it still is there in some capacity. And so it's interesting to see how they choose to craft these things. And some of that stuff and in, certainly informs the performances and everything, but the audience doesn't need to see it. Yeah. It does make me kind of wish that the uh, we had a director's cut of this because Andy, you and I have been talking a lot that a lot of the stuff that's in the script was almost certainly cut by Branagh. Like it wouldn't be in his director's cut. You know, a lot of the stuff about the Warriors Three as like slapstick comedy. That's not, yeah, not Falstaffian. Right, right. It's just it's more Adam Sandler than Falstaff, and it has no business <laughs> in this movie. Um, so yeah, I would love to know like which of those scenes he would have wanted to cut. But the studio was like, eh, three hours. We can't have a three and a half hour epic the way you like to do, Branagh. Yeah. Well, and I don't know whether you talked about this in the in the first couple of minutes of of this film, but you know, when ta- when thinking about Branagh being a good choice to direct this movie, that opening battle. That opening battle is feels very much like the big battle of Agincourt in Branagh's Henry V. And uh, I would love to look at it shot by shot comparison of the two battles, because in my head, as I'm watching it, I'm going, oh, my God, <laughs> this is the battle of Agincourt in this movie. He knows Branagh knows how to f- film a battle scene. Shameless bug moment. But if you check out those early minutes, we, we actually did go into that, not because Andy or I are, are, are brilliant analysts. Branagh talks about that in his commentary track, that he wanted to use the exact same kind of filming techniques. Very chaotic, like put you right in the battle. And that was something that he's intentionally done. Yeah. Well, that just shows what a genius I am for picking up on. <laughs> there you go. There, there you, you go. go. It's like, yeah. Anyway, I think uh, that's probably about a good place to wrap up. Any other last comments you, have, you want to make about this minute? I, I'm anxious to find out what happens with Odin. So I'm good. Well, and you called it, you called it as a joke, you know, the answer to everything, this number 42, 42nd minute. And uh, I don't think you're wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah very true. true. That's true. <laughs> Branagh's British. Douglas Adams is British. There must be a connection there. <laughs> 
Austin, as always, thank you so much for being a part of this. Uh, tell us a little bit about the Reef Shakespeare Company podcast, because that's probably where uh, our podcast listeners are going to be the most likely to find you first. Absolutely. Um, I've been, we, we, I started the podcast in December of 2006. Oh, wow. I think, I think I am the longest continually running theater podcast out there. Great. That somebody called, somebody called me the, the first voice of Shakespeare podcasting. And I would never claim that for myself, but I do kind of love that description. Um, <laughs> it's a, it's a weekly podcast that is a, it's a behind the scenes look at how our theater company does what it does. But over the years, it has also become, uh, a, a, an area where we can have conversations with artists and comedians and playwrights, directors, actors, uh, visual artists, educators, academics about theater, how it works, how it's done. Shakespeare um, and its and 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 his influences and uh, interactions intersections with popular culture. It's it's become fun for me. I've been doing. I do it every week. I don't get paid for it. I wish I did. Um, um, I <laughs> know that familiar. we. Sell, I, I know that uh, anecdotally. I know anecdotally that we sell tickets um, because people hear, "Oh, you're coming to my town." Great. Um, but but mostly I do it because I I love it. It's a it's a opportunity to have a quick 20 minute conversation about some aspect of the arts and theater specifically or comedy or Shakespeare. And, uh, you can find it at, at our website, reduce Shakespeare.com, um, uh, where we have the entire 15 year archive on our website. <laughs> and, uh, uh you, then you can also find it in all the other usual places where you get your podcasts. Well, I, I just found it on Spotify. That's why if you saw me on uh, camera, I pick up my phone. You definitely sold me. I hope a lot of fans also check that out. It sounds fantastic. Uh, and a nice break from most of my podcasts, which are either uh, Marvel superhero stuff or politics. So <laughs> a nice different direction. Austin, thank you so much. Andy, thank you to our fans. Thank you so much. You make all this possible and have a great day. Until next time, true believers. Marvel Movie Minute is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson. This season's music is One Last Ride by Martin Puringer. Find the show at truestory.fm. And if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, consider doing that for this show. Mm-hmm.